Well, we come into the text this morning in our own weakness and frailty with all the troubles of our heart. And we see this good and gracious God who desires to give answer to our troubles. How does he do this? Well, we see that in the text this morning, but before we get there, we need to pray. Would you join me? Lord, we begin this morning with a confession and a crying out. A confession related to us and therefore a plea related to you. We confess before you this morning, Lord, that our hearts are troubled, that our hearts are troubled by things of this world, that our hearts come in troubled by many things, Lord, that are are driven by circumstances and pain and hardship and heartache, and you know them, Lord. But our hearts are also troubled, Lord, because we, we cannot possibly know the truth that's present here on the pages of Scripture apart from you. We, we can't know you. We can't believe in you or trust in you. We can't rightly worship you uh, on our own merit or strength or ability or knowledge apart from you. And so our plea, Lord, our crying out, Lord, would you send your spirit among us this morning that we might know the truth, that we might have the truth declared to our hearts, that we might believe it, that we might face in a gracious way conviction, but corresponding redemption and joy. It's not, not possible on our own, but it's made possible by you and by your spirit, and so we ask for it this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so it's an, it's an iconic moment. Two, two quick examples, two quick examples, both of which will just continue to reinforce the reality that I'm a nerd. Both of my iconic moments in film history. So one of them that I think I remember actually seeing for the first time, and I, I can't be sure if I'm actually remembering it or if I just kind of manufactured the memory because I've thought about it so much, but here it is, right? Han Solo, Luke Skywalker, and Obi-Wan Kenobi, and of course Chewbacca infiltrate the Death Star and attempt to rescue Princess Leia, who's being held captive by the evil Darth Vader. We know the story. And Obi-Wan uh, yeah, goes looking for Vader. The others go to get Princess Leia. He kind of attracts Vader to himself. They get into a conflict to fight. And then he utters this famous line to Vader, something along the lines of, you know, strike me down, Vader, and I'll become more powerful than you can ever imagine. And then they're running to the Death Star, and Obi-Wan Kenobi looks over, you know, he and Luke make eye contact, and then he draws up his lightsaber intentionally, gives up his life, Vader strikes him down, you know, Luke cries out, no, and for the, even for the first time viewer of the movie, there's disappointment, you know, because there's this character, Obi-Wan, and he was intriguing and mysterious, and there's a lot we didn't know about him, and now he's gone, and it's really early on in the film. Another one, okay? Gandalf and the rest of his companions in their newly formed Fellowship of the Ring, making their way through the mines of Moria, where Gandalf's suspicions are confirmed that it's not only overrun by the enemy, overtaken by Orc, but it's also now the dwelling place of an ancient evil, the Balrog, which they will now have to face. And Gandalf tells the rest of the company just to run ahead because, as he says, swords are of no, no more use here, you know. 
But as they make their way out, Gandalf stops and he turns and he faces the evil that his companions don't have to face it, only to be snatched down into the deep, right? So he, he vanquishes the Balrog, but he's snatched down along with it, gives himself up. He says, you know, famously, fly, you fools, and then down he goes. And Frodo has that Skywalker moment, that same one, no! And the viewer is left with a similar kind of disappointment because Ian McKellen is a great actor. And he, what, he's not in this anymore? You know, if you see me tearing up at a movie where someone dies early on, it's probably not because the, the char- what happened to the character. It's because I paid good money for this ticket and I came here to see Ian McKellen and it's like, we're like 15 minutes in. It's very disappointing. No, but even more to the point, Gandalf would have been a big help, <laughs> Right? It's like if Patrick Mahomes were to get injured in the first quarter of the regular season, it's pretty disappointing for that fan base. Seems like a pretty big loss to the team. Okay, and there are so many examples of this kind of phenomena in both literature and film. And I would also argue that in many of these cases, for sure Tolkien, I would say not Star Wars, but for sure Tolkien, the symbolism is intentionally put there. And it's intentionally put there to point to the very reality that our text this morning is drawing out. Like Tolkien has John 16 in mind when he writes about these things. Um, I don't think the same is true about Lucas films. But Luke thinks there's something of the nature of the problem here. The idea is there's a lack of an understanding of what's happening around them. Luke thinks he needs Obi-Wan present physically with him. Frodo thinks having Gandalf the Grey accompany them through this journey will be better for them than what will actually transpire as the story moves forward. And that's because these stories often begin with a real common misdiagnosis, misunderstanding of the problem, which then leads to a time in which there's great sorrow, these moments where they're crying out, no, Confusion on the part of the protagonists, even really some rejoicing by the antagonists, all because of this misdiagnosis. Only to come to find later on, it was absolutely intentional. It was absolutely necessary in order to move the story forward because you don't really want Gandalf the Grey. You want Gandalf the White. Gandalf needs to become what Saruman should have been, right? Okay, all of that. So not only is something similar, not perfectly similar, I'm not claiming that The force in Star Wars is a type of Holy Spirit. I want to be clear about this. Or that Obi-Wan is a type of Christ and Yoda is a type of the Father. Okay, and we're not talking about that. And I'm not saying that what we read here isn't true or historical. That's the other big difference. But something similar, in fact, I would argue Tolkien has this in mind as he writes, is occurring in in our text this morning. More than that, something similar occurs today in our own hearts Among those who I think are familiar with Christianity, we're familiar with the Scriptures, maybe we grew up around Christianity. Maybe we grew up thinking we believe, but then we still sorrowfully later depart from it or we deconstruct because of a misdiagnosis of what Jesus is actually pointing us to. What He actually came to do, what the nature of the problem actually is and actually isn't. And the reason Jesus is now talking to his disciples here in these terms is because he knows full well what they're going to face in just a handful of hours and in the days to come following that and the days to come following that. And he wants them to know 
that he holds out a, a certain hope because of a very particular kind of help that he's going to be given, right? Uh, here, and we're going to see that. Hope held out to them. John 16, 4 through 15. Not only will we see what I've just described occurring on the pages in front of us, not only do we see I would argue very clearly a misdiagnosis of the problem that can lead to a hopelessness and disillusionment with Christianity. We also see Jesus bringing a, a gentle, loving corrective to that problem by demonstrating the hope and help he's holding out, and the help comes in the form of a person, the help comes in the form of the Holy Spirit, and if we're going to be good theologians of the Holy Spirit, it means reading about him in context, you know, this is actually a really good starting point. If you want to be a, a theologian of the Holy Spirit, like I want to learn as much as I can about who the Holy Spirit is and what the whole Holy Spirit does in the life of God's people. This is a great place to start as Jesus unpacks the Holy Spirit, but we have to see it in context, right? So here's what we're going to do. We'll see it in two ways this morning. First, we're going to see four parts of the narrative unfolding. That's where our focus will begin. That's to say... I want us to see what's happening in the midst of this conversation, how the disciples are reacting to all of this, the misdiagnosis of the problem, why it's, why it's not for their good that they misdiagnosed the problem. So we'll see those four parts, and then we'll draw out ultimately four characteristics of the kind of hope that Jesus holds out, four characteristics of the Spirit's work in that context. So if that doesn't make sense now, hopefully it will by the time we get to the end of the text. Let's begin then with four parts of the narrative, starting in the second half of verse 4. Let me read this. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Here we see first a momentary hiatus. A momentary hiatus, that means a halt, a stopping, related to the world's persecution of the disciples. Let me explain. To remind us again, the setting here is the Last Supper. Perhaps the disciples have left. They're still talking on the way to the garden. There's a little bit of debate about where this conversation now continues to take place. But the point is, we're just hours from the cross. And there are, there are things in the midst of this conversation that Jesus is now disclosing to his disciples that up to this point he's opted not to disclose. He hasn't discussed it with them. I didn't say these things to you from the beginning. This hasn't been a repeated part of my teaching. You know, this isn't to say that Jesus thinks they should be surprised necessarily, especially as it relates to like his teachings on his hour, his cross, what it is that he came to do. He said before, you're the teacher of Israel to Nicodemus, right? And yet you, you don't know these things. So it's not that he thinks they should be surprised as he discloses them. But, but specifically as it relates to persecution, because, you know, the text begins, I did not say these things to you from the beginning. The these things relates to what we looked at in the text last week. The idea that the surrounding world will hate Christians because it hates Jesus. And Jesus now tells his disciples, listen, I didn't tell you about that. Because I was still with you. In other words, you didn't have to worry about that really throughout the duration of my earthly ministry precisely because I was here with you. 
I was really the lightning rod for you. The animosity from the world that despises me was directed entirely at me, so I you know, absorbed it. There has been this momentary hiatus and persecution from the world because of my presence with you. And in a way, that teaching points them forward to what Jesus is about to do with his Father's wrath only in a more full and final and complete kind of way, absorbing it so that his disciples don't have to face it, but it's different with persecution. Because in order to be his disciples, you know, if in the end it's true of them that Jesus has absorbed the Father's wrath against sin so that they don't have to face God's wrath by their faith alone, in grace alone, and what Christ has accomplished alone, like if that's true of them, it means they can't just avoid the wrath of the world now. You know, that's what he talked about last week. And this is a theme that comes up. Again, John will pick it up later on in Revelation very intentionally. If, you've ever, if you ever have questions about Revelation, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to our series through Revelation. It'll actually connect well to what we're discussing through John. You'll see a lot of corollaries there. But the idea is everyone faces wrath. Do you remember? Everyone faces wrath. Like, Christianity doesn't present some kind of an option for a wrathless existence. And that's important to understand. Everyone faces wrath, but, but the question is, which one would you rather face? You're either going to face God's wrath or the world's wrath. So which one? Pick one, you know, right? Like, that's the idea. You're either marked by the, with the seal of God and you receive ultimate approval by God in Jesus, but you face the world's wrath because you belong to him. And the world has set its, set its face against him. Or you're marked with the beast of this world. You find approval in this world, but you face God's wrath against sin because you belong to the world. Order that's an act of rebellion against its creator. So do you see the distinction? And so Jesus points them to this in a way by saying, he's been able to be a lightning rod for, for the world's wrath for a time but now he will become the lightning rod of God's wrath for all time that we might have life with him. And yet in the midst of, of that momentary hiatus, seemingly out of fear and confusion, I think we should say, our hearts should say, understandably, they've demonstrated something of a misplaced hope. Look at verse 5. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks, where are you going? So here, secondly, in the text... Second part of the narrative, we see this misplaced hope on the part of the disciples. And to be honest, given what Jesus just acknowledged, our hearts shouldn't read the disciples' response here in any kind of a prideful way that distances ourselves and that thinks, what's wrong? Yeah, what's wrong with those guys? Why wouldn't they ask what they need to ask? I think we need to, to realize we continue to struggle with this misplaced hope today, even as Christians. That is to say, listen, Jesus says they haven't really dealt with full-blown persecution against them because it's all been directed at him. But, you know, when he goes, they're, they're going to face it themselves. And that has to be hard to hear. It's like, okay, ongoing illustration. I'll probably come back to it again. It would have been a lot easier for Luke if Obi-Wan would have hung around you know, and every time Darth showed up, he just jumped in front with his lightsaber. 
right? It would have been a lot easier because, you know, Vader wouldn't have cut off his hand. He wouldn't have had to fight him so much. There's a lot of pain he had to go through, you know. In many ways, it would have been much easier if Frodo, for Frodo if Gandalf would have just not fallen in the deep chasm. The fellowship could have stayed under his direct protection for the rest of book one. But in both cases, and in more cases like it, we can say, yeah, easier, right? But easier doesn't mean better. It's actually much worse. And in the end, it's not even easier. So to understand what Jesus means when he says this, you have to understand the kind of short-sightedness that we often have related to the plans and timing of the Lord over against our own. Our inclination is always to like trust my plans, what I think should be happening in my life. That's why I get so thrown off by my circumstances, and I'm preaching to myself here. Right? So to get this, let's back up. Jesus says something that might that might be confusing. I've actually already gotten the question this morning, okay? Because he says, I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me where are you going. But if you've been paying attention the last few weeks here, you'll remember that at the end of chapter 13 and the beginning of 14, both Peter and Thomas ask him this question, and Thomas has to be like, really, I'm going to be known as the doubting guy? And like, I don't get credit for asking the question. And in fact, Peter's question is really, in the text, verbatim. The question that Jesus says that none of them asked. So what's Jesus saying? What does he mean by this? I had a long section about the different approaches. Didn't have time for it. Trying to be disciplined. You can ask me later. But here's what I suspect. There's a few different perspectives on this. But here's what I suspect is happening. I think he's saying that they haven't really asked about it. You know, and essentially that's the theme of all the different possibilities. There's a theme of misplaced hope, okay? But I think he's saying, yeah, it didn't really ask me. You, you said the words, but, but listen, a good example would be sort of the, the no moments of Luke and Frodo. What were they? What were they? They were, when you get to the heart of the matter, a protest, a crying out. Why? Why? Don't go. You know, and... And, and I think that's what's happening here. Here's one illustration I read this past week that describes the situation pretty well. Imagine a boy whose dad told him he was going to take him fishing this coming week. So he's like, son, Wednesday through Friday this week, I've got some time off of work that I didn't anticipate. And so we're going to go fishing maybe even a couple of days this week. I'm going to come home early from work. We're going to gather up all our things. We're going to go out. We're going to fish. Only to then realize that something crucial comes up at work. He needs to travel out of town Wednesday through the weekend. He's going to be gone. You know, so he has to break the horrible news to his son. And so the child <clears throat> responds. He comes home and says, I'm sorry, I, I can't. I got, I got to go. And the child responds, where are you going? Like, What's behind the question? The child really isn't asking in that moment for all the details. The father in this case would be foolish to say, well, son, it's nice to see you showing an interest in my work. You know, uh, well, I work in mergers and acquisitions. See, and it turns out there's some trouble in a business we're trying to acquire in Los Angeles. Like, the son's eyes would glaze over. This is not, he's not looking for this kind of information. What's he doing? He's protesting. He's trying to make it known that he doesn't want his father to go. He doesn't want this to occur. And my suspicion, though I'll acknowledge I can't be sure 
is that Jesus is rebuking something similar here on the part of the disciples. But either way, even if you, you, you take another route here, I think we can all still draw the same conclusion that Jesus' tone is demonstrating the disciples have, have some form of a misplaced hope. They know that Jesus is, in a sense, protecting them now. That Jesus, as Messiah, has power to give them now what they think they really need, which is His presence with them. According to their own agenda, sure, you know, but like, isn't this very similar to the kind of spurious faith that we've seen throughout John's account so far? People believing in a Jesus of their own design, loving and believing Him for all the stuff they think He can offer them. In this case, protection from persecution. Rather than believing in a Jesus that as he's revealed himself to us. Like, what did the crowds try to do? They try to seize him and keep him, you know, keep feeding us the bread, keep doing the signs and wonders. We're going to make you king, lead an army against the Romans. Like, we want to seize you and keep you here. It's a misplaced hope. They want to hold on to the earthly ministry. They don't want the cross. But at this point, this is a misplaced hope because the cross is precisely what they need. You know, and so you start to see why they're responding the way they are. The response to Jesus has been deeply affected and warped by this misplaced hope. And that's so, it's because of that misplaced hope that we see, thirdly, okay, a materialistic hardship in the text. That is to say, here we see another way of saying this would be a worldly sorrow. We see a belief in Jesus that's rooted in this life primarily. And so the resulting kind of sorrow or hardship on the part of disciples is also rooted here in the very things we're certain to lose. Rather than seeing the actual future hope that Jesus is holding out, and we're going to see it. When Jesus describes the work of the Spirit, we're going to see this in a very real and tangible way. This future hope that makes things better when he departs, right? But, but here they, they're worried about earthly things. So um, the Apostle Paul would call this a worldly sorrow, this materialistic hope, right? So verse 6, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. I don't think Jesus is outright rebuking them in some kind of, a, I don't think this is a harsh rebuke. I do think it's, it's, a, it's a gentle and loving corrective to their response in this. Like what I'm saying to you about going away even up to this point if you knew what it meant, if you knew what it signaled, if you remembered the scriptures, if you remembered what you've read in the Old Testament, if you remember the prophets, if, if the prophets' voices are echoing in your head, it should be filling your hearts with joy because you know what's coming. But instead, you've misunderstood the true nature and center of the problem that you face it's not these circumstances, it's your sin, and we're going to get into that more in a minute. And because you have this misplaced hope in the things of the world, this materialistic kind of hope, a vision of the Messiah doing something for you in the here and now that's, that's more earthly in nature, the result is an unnecessary hardship. You're, short, you're so short-sighted that you're blind. A sorrow, a sadness at your loss of comfort now, 
when if you actually knew what I was holding out to you at my departure, you would see that you gain a much greater comfort now, even now, you gain a much greater comfort now, a greater peace now, but that, that peace and that comfort extends on forever. So the disciples' sorrow actually becomes something of a dominant theme in the text next week. This is what I mean when I say, Jesus, it's not like he's just bringing some scathing rebuke. He's shepherding the disciples in the midst of their sorrow. He does. The word sorrow is going to be used at least three times in the next section of text. So he's comforting the disciples in the midst of this. But this discussion Jesus has right now sets the stage for next week because the reason they're experiencing sorrow at the words of Jesus rather than joy in what these things mean is at least in part because they have their hope in the wrong place. And we see, we see the same thing occurring today. Let me give you a couple of examples. Many people hear the words of Jesus proclaimed. You know, the same words they grew up hearing, perhaps, in the life of a local church. But along the way, it's easy to acquire a misplaced hope in something related to this life. You know, we're not just products of the church we're raised in. We're products of the culture we live in. And when you start thinking about the stories the culture tells, the repeated mantras of the culture that, are, that, that really influence us in ways that we don't even realize that we've been shaped by it, we start to just make assumptions related to certain claims. We just assume them to be true. They're kind of declarations or defeaters. We don't even need evidence them because we've been so shaped by the cultural moment in which we live. And then these same people notice the hatred from the world in which they live, the world that's shaped them too, the culture in which they were brought up toward the things that Jesus declares. So, so they hear the words of Jesus proclaimed, they've heard them growing up, then they see and experience more and more the hatred of the world towards those things. And so Christian doctrine has a way of becoming a sorrow to us. Christian doctrine can, can start to make us sad. Like, oh, it's just, it's a shame that Christianity takes this stand in this kind of ethical way against this thing. And so we kind of go around, in, in the beginnings, kind of trying to apologize for Christian doctrine. You know, it becomes a pain point for us. After all, the culture says we should follow our heart. The stories that are told in the culture get reaffirmed in our own hearts, and we hear that to really find yourself, you need to embrace yourself, self-discovery. You know, look inward. Look inward for the solution. Self-discovery is, at its core, an act of self-affirmation, self-embrace. But then we read Jesus here saying to his disciples that they can't look inward. I mean, for the last several weeks, that's been the theme. We hear Jesus saying, you must die to yourself. Not embrace yourself. You have to die to self. You have to take up your cross and follow. There are many impulses from within the human heart that have to be put to death, not embraced, if we're to follow him. And because we're so excited about the concept of being able to live however we want, because we're so enthralled by the concept of love as our culture describes it, or self-embrace, because we're so captivated by a misplaced hope where my heart can lead me well, we hear these words from Jesus telling us that to truly find ourselves, we need to actually deny ourselves, lose ourselves, not rely on ourselves at all. And we respond, I think, in a lot of ways with disillusionment and sorrow. 
But the disillusionment only exists because somewhere along the way, we've missed what Jesus is actually holding out, which is far greater than any pursuit of the kind of self-discovery the world holds out. And there's another way that we can fall prey to this. We can be so certain, you know, that God should act in the way that we think he should act in any situation. That he should act in our timing and not his timing, according to our agenda rather than his agenda. And again, I'm preaching to myself here too. That our hearts can be unnecessarily sorrowful in the midst of our circumstances because we have a hard time trusting in the Lord. I think that's a lot of what's happening around the Lord's table. We can struggle with the reality of a materialistic hardship rooted in something related to this life rather than holding to the actual hope being held out at the cross of Christ. And so like maybe you hear the the refrain, the piano playing like, great is thy faithfulness. And you think, so I'm speaking to people who, let's say you grew up in the church or you have some form of a church background. And there might be two different ways you can respond to this. You can respond with a certain amount of nostalgia because it's like, I remember those songs being sung. I remember that, that, you know, God's people singing that when I was a child. But you can also start to respond sorrowfully because it's like, great is thy faithfulness. He doesn't seem very faithful to me right now, not in the midst of what I'm facing. And I don't think he has been faithful. We can respond to the gospels with a worldly sorrow that's rooted in concerns with this life. And look, Jesus... He doesn't come blasting both barrels at you. He comes graciously in gospel reminders so that you don't have to bear the burden of that sorrow without joy in what it is that he's done. So it shouldn't surprise us, therefore, that Jesus now transitions into the promise, fourthly, a miraculous help. That's what we see here. Jesus holds out like he doesn't leave the disciples here and shame them in it. He's not like, Look, you're going to have to face persecution. And if that circumstance makes it feel impossible to you, then your hope is misplaced and your hardship is unnecessary. And come on, Jesus doesn't say, he doesn't say, come on, get your act together. Because the whole point of this section of text, the the whole point of this discourse This farewell discourse with the disciples is that they can't get their act together, you know? So what does he do? He responds by holding out a miraculous help that he offers the disciples even in the midst of their misplaced hope that's sure to counter their worldly sorrow or materialistic hardship. Like the the miraculous help that he's about to show them now acts as a foil for these first three impulses. You know, it's it's a... A salve to be applied to it. A gospel salve to be applied to our woundedness. It truly is miraculous. It's a miraculous help because it comes in the form of a person, as we said earlier, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and he's the one who can help our hearts because he is the one who opens our eyes, as we'll see, to the actual hope that we have. So that we, our hearts don't have to get so confused and sorrowful in this life. The thing is, though, it requires that we realize this is not a work that we can do. You know, and I I say that across the board at GLC. Our mission, rooting all of life in the good news of Jesus for his glory and the city's good, our mission 
to engage our vision, to engage skeptics with the gospel. We want to see non-believing people come to faith in Jesus Christ. We want to be a place where we can bring non-believing friends to hear the gospel proclaimed. And not just bring, but like have life with them in relationship. Bring meaningful challenge to the way they think about the world around them, but also like offer friendship and support and love, right? But, but seeing people move from death to life, seeing people apply the gospel to all of life, this is not a mission that we're capable of doing. This isn't something that we can do on our own. And so it does require that we see this as miraculous help that is being done for us. Something that we can't actually do for ourselves that's made possible by God. And so Jesus describes this miraculous help here. Um, we're going to be in 7 through 15 for the rest of the way. But there are actually four uh, characteristics, really, of the Spirit's work. Four ways that the Spirit actively helps believers that Jesus centers in on here that, as I said before, really act as a foil to all the, the things that the disciples are wrestling with and struggling with. So first, number one, we see help as the central pledge of everything promised. So each one of these points will begin, each one of these ways we begin with help as the, okay? So there's different ways the Spirit helps. He is help as the central pledge of everything promised. Look at verse 7 with me. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. We've talked about this before. Um, so let me touch on an aspect that we didn't have time for last time. Jesus has spoken similar ways. In the past, he goes to prepare a place. It's for our good that he leaves but we can easily get confused. Jesus isn't saying when he says, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Jesus isn't saying that he and the Spirit can't dwell in the same time at the same place. And I think sometimes we think that way. And I've heard people talk about this text in that way. Well, Jesus and the Spirit can't both be around. Well, so, and I think we think of that because we think, well, they're both God, you know, and so then we start to have a worldly shaped and understanding, understandable, Trinity's hard to get, but it's not like, this isn't like Batman and Bruce Wayne, or Superman and Clark Kent, where you suspiciously never see them together. It's not like on Christmas morning when dad disappears and Santa Claus shows up, you know, and then Santa goes away and dad comes back frustrated that he missed Santa again, you know what I mean? Because they're the same person, Right? This is, it's not like that. Not how the Trinity works. There's one God. The Father is God. Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Each one is a distinct person of the Godhead. Three in one. So Jesus is not saying that he can't return as the Spirit metaphysically unless he, as Jesus the Son, departs, goes into the phone booth, undresses as the, the Son, Clark Kent, and comes back as the spiritual Superman. Like That's, that's a heresy known as modalism. In point of fact, from eternity past, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existed perfectly together in love and unity as one God, and they continue to today. So he's not saying that they can't be in the same place at the same time. He's saying, here's what he's saying. Do you want the hope that's been held out to you from the very beginning? Listen. What he's come to do, he's saying, is to inaugurate his kingdom on earth. And there's been a promise made. There's been a plan set in motion. 
you know, from eternity past, a decree made by the Father that these things would take place. And so he must depart for these things to occur, to be at his Father's right hand, and the Spirit must come into the midst of this. Like, do you want me to come again to put all things to rights? Like, the idea is, do you want the future hope you've been promised Um, Do you want everything the Old Testament has promised you about the kingdom coming to fruition? Then I have to leave to be at the Father's right hand. The Spirit has to come because, right? Well, listen to how the Old Testament describes the Spirit's work. Here's Isaiah 32. I wish we had more time. I had more of these texts. Isaiah 32. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. In other words, this created order is in chaos because of human sin. Human sin has set it on a trajectory of chaos and destruction. It's destroying itself until, Isaiah says, verse 15, until the Spirit is poured upon us. The Spirit is poured upon us from on high. And the wilderness becomes a fruit field, and the fruit field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruit field, and the effect of righteousness will be a peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Like for the active reader of the Old Testament, the coming of the Spirit is linked with what God will do to bring about the end in which he'll fully and finally accomplish everything that he has told us he would. To bring about peace, shalom, transformative peace, and restoration for his people. I I wish we had time to read, you, you can write it down, Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. Isaiah 44, 1 through 5. Ezekiel 11, 17 through 20. Joel 2, 28 to 32. If you didn't get those, you can talk to me later, but read it later today. The list goes on. Jesus is saying the kind of help he offers, the kind of help the Spirit will come to give us is an, what, what theologians would call an eschatological hope. That's to say it's a help rooted in what he will do at the end of time, a resurrection help in the midst of death, a restoration help in the midst of sin and suffering, a redemptive help in the midst of the fall. So, so first we see... The Spirit is the pledge of those things. It's the guarantee. It's the down payment. It's the de- he is the deposit of these things. He is the signal that the end will come as Jesus promised. He's the help in this way of everything promised. Second, we see, so we, we might ask, well, how does the Spirit do that work? How does He do this work of being the pledge of everything promised? Well, here we see, secondly, a help as the central purveyor of people's conviction. Look at verses 8 and 9. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Right? Like he's come to, to usher in this new kingdom of God on earth. Like inaugurate. It's, it's already. It's not yet. He's come to inaugurate this kingdom. How does he begin this inauguration? Convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin because they don't believe in me. 
Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. What is it that the Holy Spirit comes centrally to accomplish? Well, he comes to bring conviction to the world in a number of ways. First, he convicts the world regarding its own sin. And by convict, we don't just mean it in a judicial sense. There is that. Like we're convicted in it in the sense of like a guilty verdict has been handed down in all times. And in a sense, you know, we talked about this word helper actually has the sense of like helper or counselor in a courtroom setting. There's a judicial sense to this word in which we've said before, like, he becomes a witness for the defense, a witness of truth related to my life with Jesus. But he's also a witness to the prosecution, you know, like he's a witness to sin in the world. He bears witness to the reality of guilt. Okay, so there is a judicial sense of convict, but we don't just mean it in a judicial sense because it's obviously possible to be convicted of a crime in court for which you, you show no remorse. It happens all the time. It's possible to like try to maintain your innocence even in the midst of being convicted guilty. It happens all the time. No, here the word is used in a way that demonstrates a kind of internal shame that recognizes your guilt before the Lord. And you know, that's not normally perceived as a help among Christians. We often hear the word conviction of sin and we think, oh, legalism? It's like, that's not legalism, it's grace. It's grace upon grace that the Lord would do that. Why? Well, it certainly is a gracious help for us to see the very center of our need. Here the Holy Spirit demonstrates the point at which we need help the most. Sin, our our act of rebellion against God. It's It's where help is most keenly needed. That's grace that he would show this to us. Because without it, we would just die in our sins. He convicts. Spirit comes to convict us internally of sin and rebellion against God. He convicts concerning righteousness, lest any of us believe ourselves to be righteous before the Father the way that only Jesus is. He convicts concerning of judgment, lest any of us believe, along with Satan's words to Eve in the garden, that there is no judgment, that we might try to deny judgment. And that's because thirdly we see that he's help as the central proclaimer of truth. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Look at verse 13 too. When the Spirit comes, Spirit of truth, Spirit of truth. John refers to him this way in his epistle also. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The question is, like, the question Jesus is addressing related to the the Spirit's help as the central proclaimer of truth is, how are we to know? You know, like, if what Jesus has said to the disciples up to this point is true about them, you know, and if it's true about us, if it's true that we're sinful, that we believe ourselves righteous when we're actually sinful, that we reject the idea of judgments, that that we're internally deceived, that, that we can't look inward for the solution, you guys. Like looking inward to myself, to my own strength, will not land me in a good spot. So if that's true, how are we to know? How are we to come to a knowledge of the truth and grow as Christians? It's only by the Spirit. But the good news is that the Spirit comes proclaiming truth so that we know, so that by the Spirit's work in our hearts, like this is why we pray before we preach. 
We don't weekly come to prayer before the text because it's like just a part of our liturgy that we have to do to check off the list of stuff that we do in our liturgy. We come to the text and we pray because we need the Spirit's power active in the Word of God. It's it's the Spirit of God through the Word of God. The reason that the text sits here between the preacher and the people is because it's the text that we proclaim. The reason that it's God's word that we proclaim is because the normative way his spirit works in the world is to make that word known to our hearts in order that we might hear it and be convicted of our sin, that we might repent, that we might see restoration. It's only by the spirit, but the good news is that he comes proclaiming truth so that we're not relying on ourselves, but rather on God himself to show us truth, which will always lead us finally then The central kind of help that Jesus gives. His help is the central pointer to Jesus. Let me read 13 again. When the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. Right? So he's not some rogue. Just like the relationship between Jesus and the Father, the spirit isn't some rogue third agent doing whatever he wants. He is doing what he wants. He is doing what he wants. Three persons, one God sharing the same desires. Verse 14, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Like what is the, what ultimately, at, at like where the rubber meets the road of the Holy Spirit's work in this world, what is it that he does? He takes what is Jesus and declares it to us. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. As we've said before, and there's a lot of confusion that abounds on this, do you want to know that the Spirit's active in your life? Do you want to know that the do you want to, and, and I encourage you, if you're looking for a local church, you should be looking for a church where the Spirit of God is active, you know? But do you want to know the signposts that Jesus gives us, that actually all of the Scriptures give us for the Spirit's activity in the world? It's as a pointer to Christ. So you can see the Spirit's activity in the midst of God's people echoing the gospel to one another out of grace for their own growth and edification and joy in Him, watering and planting the gospel. What it is that Jesus came to do for us. This is what, we wouldn't be able to know any of that apart from the Spirit. Like It's not going to be like, oh, I can tell the Spirit's active in my life because I get all these impressions of what He what college he wants me to go to, who he wants me to marry, the next thing he has me do, the calling he has me to do, these very specific things like, no, no, okay, there's confusion here. That's actually not the primary role of the Spirit, and I would push back and say, I don't think that's a biblical concept of calling. We often want to look at these so-called miraculous signs, then, as the central way of gauging the Spirit's activity with us, but that's just not the way the Spirit's work is described. In a primary sense in Scripture, Jesus has this opportunity with his disciples to describe the work of the Spirit, and we don't see these miraculous signs here listed for us. It's not that the Spirit can't or doesn't do them. I believe he can, and he does. It's that those things point to Jesus. That's their purpose. And it's also that the most miraculous thing, you want to see miracle. It's miraculous help. You want, to, you want to see a miracle. The most miraculous thing that could ever happen is a sinful human heart being transformed by the sheer grace of Christ. Like a sinful human heart, totally depraved in nature, knowing nothing other than rebellion against a good king, turning toward him and having his, our hearts transformed by him, to love him and become like him by grace alone. That is so much more miraculous, so much more of a miracle than any kind of like tongue or healing or slaying in any kind of a church in this world that it's ever displayed, especially if those tongues, healings, utterances of prophecy point to the church or to the leader or to to the signs themselves rather than to Christ at the cross on our behalf 
which is what the Spirit comes to do. We cannot confess Jesus as Lord apart from the Spirit. This is what he does. He displays the center of our need, and that need is centrally seen at the cross. It is what we need. Let's pray that together at Gospel Life Church we would keep that hope that we have of this life that's to come with God, that the Spirit is the down payment of in our lives, that we would keep that central, that we keep the cross central, that we wouldn't have a misplaced hope in this world that would lead us to a worldly kind of sorrow, an unnecessary kind of just sorrow, or even a, a walking away, an abandoning of things that we've heard, a deconstructing of these things. So let's pray together for this, and then let's come to the table for another gospel reminder. God, only you can do this. Gracious God and Father, you sent your Son to die that we might have life in you, and you sent your Spirit into this world that we might have our hearts awakened by grace. So now as we come to this table together, remind us of the grace that you've shown us, that we might abide in this life, that we might grow in your grace and mercy, even in the midst of hardships, so that we might know that when you say to us, let not your hearts be troubled, that you mean business, that you're really holding out truth and grace and love in Jesus' name. Amen.